giving to you. Um, hope you guys uh, have uh, brought an appetite um, because we're going to have some good food uh, after this. And um, we hope that you also uh, have some great plans for uh, Thanksgiving this week with uh, family and friends. Uh, that'll be a good time as well. So um, anyway, welcome, welcome. Welcome to both those who uh, regularly come. Thank you for uh, those who are new for coming and joining us. Thank you, Cole, for the water. Thank you for everything. So, all right, guys. Well, it's good to see you today. And um, I'm going to try to make this brief today uh, so that we can uh, enjoy one another's fellowship uh, there in the cafeteria. And uh, for those of you who haven't been to high school in a while, um, welcome back. Um, (laughs) We do promise um, something more than okra, fried okra today. Um, (laughs) But besides that, um, let me tell you that it's going to be good. So what we're doing this week is we're actually beginning for the holiday season uh, a new series called Fulfilled. And uh, for those of you I don't know yet, my name is Roland, and I'm the lead pastor here, uh, one of the pastors along with uh, Cole, who you just met. And what we're going to do through this series, Fulfilled, is we are going to set up the Christmas season and also the Thanksgiving season, which we're in, uh, through really interpreting the scripture through the lens of Jesus Christ. Um, Because ultimately what we see that Jesus is and who Jesus is, is a fulfillment of all of the messianic prophecies uh, that came hundreds of years before his arrival. Um, And he was the fulfillment of the uh, mandate, not only to be king, but also savior of the world. Um, But we want to use a little bit of a double entendre here and actually understand how the things that were fulfilled in Jesus through the scripture also bring fulfillment to the deepest seated um, God-given desires and needs in our lives. Um, So what we're going to do is we're going to see how Jesus first fulfilled those prophecies, but then understand how in fulfilling those prophecies, he met every need and desire that we actually have been given by God. So if we could begin, let's pray. And then we're going to go to two scriptures today, um, starting this series called Fulfilled. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us today. Um, God, we thank you that Jesus has come not only as a fulfillment of prophecy, not only as the fulfillment of scripture, um, but Jesus, you literally came to fulfill that which you created in us, every need, every desire, every, every want, every, every, uh, everything that we long for that's been created by you. It's really found and fulfilled in you. And God, we pray that as we continue to study your word throughout this week, we'd meet with you in a fresh way, in a deeper way, God, and that we'd come to a greater appreciation for all that you are and all you've done in your mighty name. Amen. Okay, today, um, if you're going to take notes, what we're going to start off talking about is uh, not necessarily one of the prophecies, but uh, specifically one of the mentions, one of the most familiar mentions uh, that God has made of himself in interaction with humanity. Um, And what we see is that in the Bible, if you're not familiar with it, there's both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament um, was that which was the predicting of the coming Messiah in Christ. Um, The New Testament was that which was the fulfillment of the coming Messiah in Christ in Jesus and all that he did in the explanation of who he was and what he's done. Um, But one of the uh, people who were most notably mentioned in the Old Testament was a man named Moses. And we know the story of uh, Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt, out of their slavery into the promised land. And then uh, secondly, uh, of Jesus himself, Jesus and his life. And so today we're going to see how Jesus fulfilled uh, our lives and our walks with God through three things. Number one, through kindness. Number two, through provision. And then number three, finally, through mercy. 
kindness, provision, and mercy. Kindness, provision, and mercy, which are absolutely deep-seated needs and desires in each and every one of our lives. So let's open today to Psalm 145, and we're going to skip down uh, a few verses, starting in verse 8, to read together. Let's begin. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are fa- falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. So whenever we think of God Almighty, we think, first of all, of multiple things. Depending on what type of background you've come from, you may have a caricature or a depiction of him that is accurate or it might, in fact, be skewed. I think um, for myself, growing up outside of a church, outside of the church walls, I often thought of God as a person who was distant. I thought of God as somebody who was angry. Even in my uh, literature classes, I would uh, hear of great sermons, um, but it was counted as famous literature within our um, circles. How many of you have ever heard of Jonathan Edwards' famous uh, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Okay? Now, that's a fantastic and theologically sound sermon. Everybody understand that, okay? But at the same time, that is all I knew of God. Whenever I was coming to God, I did not know him as uh, somebody who was approachable. Um, I did not know him as someone who was concerned about um, me or my welfare or the welfare of my family, much less the world that surrounded me where I saw so many issues and problems in life. But when I began to open the Bible and actually look at the scripture, I saw that the very things that I was longing for, the very harshness of reality that I was looking to escape from, was actually found in the person of Jesus Christ as he represented himself in scripture. The same man that, uh, or the same person that Jesus, um, that Jesus was, that Jonathan Edwards was referring to, was also found in this early psalm in the Old Testament, where he's describing himself and his character. He's describing his personality, and once, once I began to read these things, it satisfied a deep need in my soul. What I saw was that God was gracious and merciful. 
over and over again throughout the scripture, we see that God himself describes himself as gracious, speaking of his kindness, and merciful, meaning that he withholds from us that which we actually deserve. What we do know is that we are um, fallible, or we are sinners, we are people who make mistakes, and we've not only been the product of people's wrong decisions and poor choices in life, um, but we also perpetuate those same wrong choices in life. Many of you have heard the term before, hurt people hurt people. I mean, you've heard that term before. We see that over and over again in family lines, that the same way that parents have been treated by their parents, they pass on that treatment to their children. And cycles of distrust, cycles of abuse, cycles of wrong treatment, guilt or shame, they're passed down in family lines until something comes in, intervenes, and breaks the cycle. And it's the graciousness and the compassion of the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. And what we see is that he's gracious and merciful. And when we look at the uh, term gracious in the Old Testament, it comes from a Hebrew term that's actually known as chanun. And gracious means to be abounding, not just having a little bit, but abounding in compassion. It means to be abounding in compassion. Whenever you look at God, and though I often understood and knew that the things that I were doing were wrong or that it displeased him, I understood at the same time that the God through the scripture that I was reading about and coming to know was also abounding in the midst of my sin in compassion toward me. That in the midst of my sin, while I was still a sinner, he came and he, in essence, felt for me. Have you ever walked the streets of Chicago and actually seen things that are going on, whether it be poverty or homelessness, or you see people in their interactions on the train or on the bus or in a store, especially around the holiday season when it's supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year, but it seems that shopping brings out the worst in people, does it not? Okay, it's sort of like, my goodness, people going at each other, and there's something that starts to come out of you that, like, that brings out a compassion in you saying that there's something something wrong about the situation. And the Bible calls it sin and Jesus comes to deal with it. But in the midst of you seeing that it's wrong, you have compassion towards those that, those that you see are the product of that sin. And that's God's heart towards people, not just his people who already belong to him, but all of humanity. Because what we see in this Psalm is that he said that he's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, slow to anger, And that's good news, is it not? That in the midst of our wrongdoing, in the midst of our failings, in the midst of our shortcomings, that God doesn't have a trigger finger, but he is slow to anger. And he's abounding, meaning overflowing, in love and faithfulness. And because of this, it says that not just some of his works, but all your works give thanks to you, O God. All your works give thanks to you. And that means that it's people who are like ourselves in a church setting today, but also people who find themselves outside of the church walls. We see that many times people are spiritual but not religious in our present generation, right? They look to a higher power. They give themselves to something that they're trying to ascribe thanks toward because they know that there is somebody or something that's been kind towards them. Even in the midst of the troubles or the trials or the the disparities that they're experiencing in their life, they always talk about the man upstairs, right? Or something or somebody looking over them. And what they're speaking about is the kindness of God, the compassion of God, where he said, I've expressed this to all mankind. 
to all mankind, not just those who know me, not just those who love me. That's why even when Jesus was speaking and he was talking in the New Testament scriptures, he said, listen, he's made his sun to shine on the righteous and the wicked. He's made his good news come to everyone, whether we deserve it or not. And that's because of the kindness that he has within himself and within his heart. And we know that ultimately the gospel means this, that Jesus has come to pay the price for our sin. He's come to take the punishment that we all deserve before a just and a holy God. But to be able to receive the kindness that he has for us, expressed to us on the cross, he demands something of us. He not only demands belief, meaning putting our trust in who he is and what he's done for us, but he demands repentance. A word that means to literally change your mind in the way that you're going, go in a different direction, and submit your life to God. But God says that literally it is his kindness towards us that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness and his compassion that leads us to repentance. I think all the time about growing up even in my own family's household and thinking about the many corrections, I'll say it that way, that I needed from family members and those, my, my younger sister, I, I was the oldest. And so I was the experimental child. Anybody else the experimental child in here? Yeah. Yeah. Where they sort of were figuring it out with you. And it's sort of like, you know, that was fun sometimes and like, you know, not fun a lot of the times. And I remember that in the midst of the corrections that I was receiving for the many things that I did, I was high energy high energy. I didn't have a whole lot of sit down moments, you know, in life, whether it be in at the home or unfortunately in the classroom. And eventually my teachers would say, Hey, listen, if you're going to be up walking around all the time, you can just go all the way to the principal's office. I said, fine. <laughs> and I would go <laughs> and I would go and I'd come home and I'd say, listen, almost like I did it again. <laughs> I did it again, and there was something driving me. There was something that was off in me. There was something where I was like, I want to do better, Mom and Dad, but it seems like there's something in me that's bound. This is just the way I'm made. This is just the way I am. And, you know, yes, there were spankings. Anybody remember spankings back in the day? Yes, that is not a dirty word, new generation. <laughs> you know I mean? it is, <laughs> there, there were spankings back in the day, but I remember not only the spankings, but I remember the kindness and the compassion of my father. In the midst of those spankings, him saying these words that you might have heard before, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts who? You. Anybody hear that growing up? This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. How many people felt like in the moment it was a lie? Okay. Okay. Right. We all did. Right. But now being a father, I understand the truth of that statement. Listen, though there's discipline in the midst of discipline, in the midst of correction, in the midst of having to turn people from wicked ways and things that are sinful and are ultimately going to be destructive for them. The compassion of the Lord rises up and he says, listen, this will hurt me more than it hurts you. And it's my kindness knowing that I have something better for you, life and life to the the fullest if you choose to follow my way. He says, in repentance, through my kindness, seeing the compassion, not only in his word, but hearing it in his voice by the Holy Spirit, seeing it, imagining it in his eyes through Jesus, who was hanging on the cross for us, it turns us towards that repentance, saying there's something better for me. 
That though I see the product of my ways and though I see that my life is a product of the hurt that was passed down to me and I'm hurting people through it because of what I've absorbed in and of myself. Jesus comes through the cross and his compassion takes it on himself and then says, through my kindness, I've got better for you. Turn and do likewise. Turn and follow me in my ways and I'll actually lead you to the life that I have for you. It's that compassion that wells up in him. We give thanks to God because of his continued kindness toward us. And we give thanks for the ways that he's continually not only been kind to us, but provided for us. Because ultimately what we do need is kindness, right? What we do need is kindness. I know that we're in a high, high intensity city. You're, you're, whether through academia or work, you're being driven you know, to succeed, you're being driven to produce, you're being driven to accomplish certain things and certain feats. But the thing is, is that it all works better when there's a little bit of kindness in the midst of that culture, does it not? In the midst of the work culture, and I know that many Fortune 500 companies even today are trying to insert that or plug that into their culture, that it's not just about the end results, but it's about the culture that we create in the midst of the workplace, right? And then people are literally graduating from school and they're looking for environments or cultures where that's being developed. And it's because we ultimately, whether we know God or not, have a hunger and a longing for the kindness of the Lord. And God says, I've got it for you if you would look to me. But he says, not only do you have a need for kindness, but you have a need for provision as well. That's without, that's without uh, instruction. That's without underst- um, really any need for mention. But one of the most enduring pictures of God's kindness towards his people is his provision of bread from heaven, manna, which he fed the Israelites with 40 years in their desert wandering. We talked a lot about um, God's kindness in bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. Whenever he brought them out of Egypt, it was literally a picture of them coming out of their physical slavery into a land of promise, where he said, I'm going to actually bring you into the land that I have for you, free of the slavery of the Egyptians, and there I'm going to provide for you. But in the midst of your desert wanderings, in the midst of you going from place to place and having to feel like you're fending for yourself, he said, I'm going to supernaturally provide provide for you. I'm going to provide manna from heaven that enables you to be sustained over these 40 years of discipline, even in the midst of your rebellion and your, what we like to call sanctification process. So what happens is that we come to Jesus whenever he sets us free. He, in his kindness, leads us to repentance. But over the course of the rest of our life, there is a process called sanctification where God is making us like himself, where through repentance, he's saying, these are my my ways walk in them. This is what my son is like. I'm transforming you into being like him. And when we believe, we come into the land. When we, uh, I guess, buck against it a bit, we end up like the Israelites in desert wanderings. But even in the midst of desert wanderings, which are dry to our souls, he provides for us. He provides for us. And the great need and the desire we had for his provision is realized through his son. The manna that came from heaven was something that appeared on the ground every morning uh, that the Israelites were to take up and feed on. It was God's way of not only satisfying their hunger needs, um, but it was also him satisfying their souls. And we see Jesus being the fulfillment of the manna that we need from God whenever he speaks of himself. He says, this provision that I've given you in the desert wanderings is a foreshadowing or a picture of who Jesus would ultimately be, not just for your physical needs, but also for the needs of your soul. 
He says, I'm literally going to be the one that satisfies or fulfills the needs that I've given to you in your soul. What are some of those needs? They're relational needs. What are those, some of those needs? They're financial needs. What are some of those needs? They're purpose needs, right? All of these existential ideas and things that drive us, whether we realize it or not, they're things that are driving us because they're God-given, many of them. And he says, I'm the source and the provision for this by being the manna from heaven, even in the midst of your desert wanderings. And this is what Jesus talks about in John chapter six. Let's read this together. It was Jesus in a familiar story. And the reason we're using this today is obviously because we're about to eat a lot of Friendsgiving, but it's him um, feeding the 5,000. And so don't you worry if you came and did not expect to come to Friendsgiving, you're still welcome to come. God performed miracles before multiplying the fish and the loaves. He'll multiply it today. We order just enough for you. And so the thing is, is that he fed the 5,000 with two fish and five loaves of bread. And he said that he fed them until they were satisfied. He gave them as much as they wanted of him. Meaning that we see in Jesus a clear depiction of God's compassion, of his kindness towards us. Jesus said of himself, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. So if you want to get to know God, you can look to Jesus. Jesus is the perfect depiction of Father God expressing himself in the earth. And what we see, though, is that he gave and he gave out of his kindness until the people were satisfied. Until the people were satisfied. And what does that mean to us, both as Christians and those who are just seeking things out? It means that you've got to have a hunger for God, right? Because ultimately, he's going to call you and draw you to himself, but ultimately, he's not going to force himself upon you. He's saying you are going to get as much of this as you come for. If you want to grow in God, then you've got to have a hunger in God. You've got to have a hunger for righteousness, which he said he would fill. You've got to have a hunger for his word. You've got to have a hunger for his fellowship. You've got to have a hunger for his people. And he said, I will meet that need and satisfy that desire as you cultivate it within you. But Jesus speaking after he multiplied the fish and the loaves and feeding the 5,000 in a miraculous way, he begins to talk to people after going to another area on the other side of the, um, the lake that he crossed. And in verse 22, it says this, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? 
What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So that's very, that metaphor is obviously a poignant one. That metaphor is a great one. But the thing is, is how does it play out in our everyday life? If Jesus is literally saying that I am the bread of life and whoever comes to me will never hunger and whoever comes to me will never thirst again, how does that play out in our everyday experience? In those deep-seated needs and desires that we have, Jesus obviously through the cross was ultimately the one who satisfies the wrath of God, right? He says, because you come to me, the wrath is going to come on me and not on you. Eternal life is an option to you because I've, took it, I've taken the punishment so that you will not have to. I've been raised from the dead and to eternal life so that you through me can have access to this as well. But what happens in between the time of our believing and the time of our meeting him for that eternal life? Well, what happens is, is that those needs that we have on a daily basis are still there. Those needs are still there, right? For instance, when he tells us to pray, he says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day, Jesus telling his disciples, teaching them how to pray. He says, give us this day our daily bread speaking and referring even to the manna that came down from heaven, the daily bread that provided physical provision for the Israelites. So God does provide physically for you. He does provide in your jobs. He does provide in terms of the things that you have and many times take for granted. Thanksgiving's a holiday where we can stop and actually say in our culture, oh, thank you, right? Thank you, at least, for all that you've given me and all that you've done for me. It hasn't just been my hard work. It hasn't just been my intellect. It hasn't just been my education. But it's, God, you opening doors that no man can shut, and sometimes shutting doors that no man can open, putting me in the place that I need to be to actually literally provide for me. And we don't ever need to take God for granted in that place, but we need to give him thanks. Do we not? We need to give him thanks. Give him thanks and say, God, thank you for the job I have. There are many people just as educated as me, just as skilled as me, just as experienced as me who are looking for jobs today. Everybody realize that. But if you have what you need, it's because God Almighty has been a provider that you need to give them thanks for. 
practical provision. But Jesus went beyond that and he said that I'm also the bread of life. Not just of the business of life, but the animated life of God. When Jesus said that I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me, part of that life was not just the business affairs of life, but the animation of life. The thing that gives you energy in life. The thing that gets you up out of bed in the morning. The thing that wants you to go on living, right? He says, I am life, and I'm coming to give life to the full if you come in me and through me. And you've got to know that you've got to feed on me to have that life. You've got to remain in me to have that life. Work and academics and scheduling and even parenting or trying to be a good spouse, all of those things can become taxing without the bread of life coming to continually feed you and re-energize you for those things that you're doing. And when you relate to Jesus, what's happening is, is that he's remembering that you are made and formed out of the dust of the earth. That just as at the beginning, he brought together the dust and breathed into it and said, become a living being. And there was Adam and he began to live. And even when, when you have to clean your house, you're wiping up dead skin cells of the dust that's coming off of you, Right? He says, I'm breathing into you once again the life of God that animates you and gives you the ability to relate well as a spouse, to relate well as a parent. Matter of fact, to have the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is patience that you need in the midst of it. Joy that you want and desire in the midst of what it would otherwise seem to the rest of the world, drudgery. He's saying, I'm giving you the kindness of God. I'm filling you with it. And as a matter of fact, when you come to God and look upon his face, all of a sudden, he's breathing into you each and every time. Once again, the life that you need to reflect him. That's why we worship. We lift him up. And what we're doing is we're turning our eyes once again to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords from whom life came and who sustains all life. We're turning our eyes from the things that we're pouring out our life into to him who gives life. And then once again, feeding on the bread of life through interaction with him, he breathes into us again, the life that we need to honor him. Does that make sense? It's a relational thing. And he says, you'll never hunger again. And yes, for those of you who are waiting for a romantic relationship, he even means that. In the midst of you waiting for romance, you will not desperately desire something that cannot be fulfilled in him. Let me tell you, ladies, he, verse describes, one of the first things he does is describes himself as the husband of Israel. And that might sound weird to men, but I'm telling you, it's understandable to you. I'll tell you, when you come to him as a great husband, he, he satisfies something in your soul where you don't look for your um, satisfaction or your fulfillment, or you don't look for your worth out of somebody who's going to tell you how great you are. And when they're not telling you you're great, you begin to crumble or disintegrate. Instead, he's speaking the value over you that he has for you. He's speaking over you the care and the compassion and the kindness that he has for you so that one day when you do go into the relationship that you've longed for, you're already filled. And instead of actually looking so desperately to derive it from the one that you love, you're able to give it to them. Why? Because you're not hungering and thirsting for something he hasn't already filled. He says, I'm the bread of life. 
If you're looking for identity, you're looking for purpose. He's saying, go to the one who made you. Stop trying to figure it out on your own, he said. When I am an artist, a great artist, and I have a grand design for not only the planet, but your life and human history, he said, come to me and I'll fill you with that design. That's why we can refer to even Old Testament scripture like we are so often do, like out of Jeremiah, which people take it out of context all the time, but the sentiment is still true where he says, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. The compassion, the kindness of God. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And even though I send you because of your sin at times into exile or what feels like an exile of the soul, he says, surely you'll do what? You'll come to me. And you'll pray to me. And you'll seek me and you'll find me. When you seek me, right? Once again, being satisfied. He'll give you as much as you're satisfied with. When you seek me with your whole heart. And when you come to me, there's going to be a feeding on me. And I'm the bread of life. And he says, going down further in the scripture, whoever wants that life, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood... You can have no part of me, which is literally the gospel. Unless you feed on a reminder, a continual settling of the broken body of Jesus, not cannibalism, but literally the broken body of Jesus. I'm remembering the gospel. I'm remembering his broken body for me over and over again. I'm feeding on his blood, that blood that was spilled for me, cleansing me, sanctifying me, setting me apart to um, to himself, actually giving me access to a holy God, satisfying that need of provision in me. He says, literally, I've provided an access to a holy God for you through my blood. And if you feed on me, you'll have eternal life. And that life, he said later, is ultimately described like this. He said, now this is eternal life. This is eternal life. That you might know the only true God. That you might know him and Jesus Christ who he sent. That you might know him and Jesus Christ who he sent. He's saying, I'm giving you provision of that through my word. But ultimately, going back to that original scripture, he says, going back to Psalm 145, he says that not only does he provide for us in our physical state, not only does he provide for us in our soul, Jesus being the original chicken soup of the soul, Jesus is our great provision of the mercy of God. Going back to Psalm 145, verse 8, he said, the Lord is gracious and merciful. Merciful. We all need mercy, do we not? And sometimes when you're full of pride, you have a realization of the mercy that you meet even more than those who aren't as full of pride. And you try to hold yourself up, hold yourself up, but you become your harshest critic. Full of pride. Talking about how great you are and trying to one-up uh, your co-workers, family members, and friends. But in your heart of hearts, there's something gnawing away, eating at you. 
saying, I just need help. I can only keep this up for so long. I, I, I need some mercy. I need somebody to come and extend something toward me that I don't have to keep up this facade, that I can finally lay down my hair and just be me. Anybody ever had those inward, inner discussions before? Saying, like, I've put up with this so long, trying to meet everybody's expectations, meet everybody's desires, meet everybody else's needs. And ultimately, I know I fall short, and what I need is mercy. Well, the good news is, is that Jesus comes as an expression of the mercy of God. Where even in the midst of your perceived and unperceived shortcomings, he says he's gracious and merciful. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. How is Jesus ultimately a fulfillment of this? Jesus was ultimately a fulfillment of the mercy that we all desire and understanding that our destiny, our destiny is to ultimately die once and then face judgment. We all face judgments of different types every day. And it's for those judgments we're looking, from those judgments we're looking to escape if we are honest with ourselves. I don't want somebody to judge me because of my ethnicity. I don't want somebody to judge me because of my gender. I don't want somebody to judge me because of where I grew up or how I grew up. I'm, I'm looking for somebody just to show me some mercy and the kindness and the provision that God himself reflects. And whenever Jesus came, <clears throat> we see that though God is kind, what he was also was just. And God, though he was kind, he, he looks on the frailty of humanity and he sees how hurt people have been perpetually hurting people. And he's not okay with it. He's compassionate, but he's not okay with sin. He doesn't excuse sin just because everyone's full of it. That's what we've begun to do in our culture is begun to say that just because everybody is full of it, it means that it's ultimately acceptable. And just because sin is rampant in our culture doesn't mean that it's okay or that God overlooks it. God in his justice had to be compassionate and kind, but ultimately, as we said, his kindness ultimately led people to repentance. And Jesus was the expression of God's mercy. He was both gracious and merciful in that his wrath still had to be satisfied. All, either, number one, in the final judgment to come, or in the cross of Jesus Christ that's already taken place. His mercy was most clearly expressed in offering eternal life to those who did not deserve it. His mercy, the mercy that we're all looking for, was him withholding his anger from the children of men and women <clears throat> and putting it on his own son, Jesus, as a righteous, blameless sacrifice for our sins. Jesus was our great provision and that he fulfilled the hunger and present day thirsting of our souls, but he was ultimately the provision of God and the expression of God's mercy because if we didn't take the punishment, 
I'm sorry, if he didn't take the punishment, we ultimately would have to. And when Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, he's saying, I'm literally this fulfillment of the mercy of God toward you. The mercy of God is withholding from each and every one of us that which we deserve. And no matter how sweet you've been at times or how cute you are to your parents, family or friends, he says there's no one righteous, not even one. Not one. The poison of vipers has been on all of our mouths at some point. We've all been impure. We've all been spiteful. We've all been hateful, but Jesus has not. Jesus was sinless, perfect, blameless. And Jesus was the only one who could take the sacrifice, be the sacrifice, and take the punishment on the cross for our wrongdoing. And he says, if you want God to withhold from you what you ultimately deserve, you've got to have a substitute. And Jesus was ultimately that merciful substitute. God withholding from us what we deserve because someone actually did pay the price and it was him. He was gracious, giving us what we don't deserve in eternal life because of the kindness that overflows out of his heart. He says your res- his resurrection from the dead provided access for your eternal life. But to receive it, you've got to come to the table. To stay in it, remain in it, live in it, you've got to feed on that bread of life. It's not enough that you just said a prayer so many years ago and then you're on cruise control now. You've got to feed on the bread of life. You've got to feed on Jesus. You've got to feed on the life that he has for you every day. Every day. For any of you who've ever tried to fast or some of you call that dieting, it's not the same. You understand the need that you have for physical food every day. But Jesus is saying, you need, just as you need physical food, you need to feed on me in my life every day if you've been walking with me. And if you've never known him, he invites you to the table today. He invites you to the table today and said a banquet is being made for you and it's the provision of himself. And if you've never known kindness... You've never known provision. You've never known mercy. He said you can know it in him today. And even if you've seen it imperfectly, he's got a picture perfect of what, a perfect picture rather, of what it looks like for him in him, in his son today. And so just as we're going to Friendsgiving, the call before that is to come to his table and to feed on him. If you've never known Jesus, repent because of his kindness towards you. Turn away from sin and put your trust in what he's done for you. If you've already known Jesus, come back to the table and make it a point to continue to feed on him that the life that he has for you might actually flow through you. But there is no participating, I I can't say this is enough, there is no participating in Friendsgiving unless you go to that cafeteria today. You get the point, right? You got to get up out of your, nobody's going to bring you a plate here. (laughs) Okay? We're kind, but not that kind. Listen, the thing is, (laughs) you got to get up and make your own plate. So the thing is, in the same way, God's saying, I've made my approach to you. Now you make your approach to me. 
and receive what I've already provided for you as the bread of life. Does that make sense? All right. So as we go into worship um, today, what we're going to ask everyone to do, we're not going to have communion today, but what we were talking about ultimately is a communion moment where we're talking about the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus Christ as our great provision. And as we go back into worship, whether you've known him before or not, we're imploring you to come to him, that you might know the kindness, the provision, and also the mercy of God. Wherever you started from, this can be your day. In Jesus' name, amen.